my name is Paul Thies, and today I'm joined by Dina Salvaggio, the principal of the healthcare consulting practice at Jacobs, and Don Sorensen, executive vice president of operations for Mercy Health Ministry and regional president of Mercy West Communities. So thank you, Don and Dina, for joining me today. Uh, sure. Kind of start us off, uh, today our topic is, is really going to be the, around the impact of COVID-19 on the American healthcare system and some of the various dynamics at play there. And so to start us, I'd like to ask Don, uh, first of all, what do you see has been the overall impact of COVID-19 on the American healthcare system to date? Yeah, so uh, thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be with you. It's, it's a horrible irony that the one thing in the American healthcare, uh, the one thing that stands between Americans and the virus is American healthcare, and the virus itself has, has just uh, cratered uh, American healthcare financials. Okay, and so uh, can you explain a little bit, like how, yeah. how has that done that? What are some of those? Uh, yeah, those so uh, several things have, have happened. First, in, uh, in, in the middle of March when the CDC and, and governments asked us to stop taking care of uh, non-emergent patients, that had a de devastating impact on our revenue mm -hmm. and expense structure. And then setting up and getting the required PPE, getting the required facility changes, all of those type of things uh, impacted the ex expense. Uh, so that was short-term and immediate. It, everyone's financials in American healthcare uh, were, uh, were, were devastated, really. Then we add to that as we started doing um, shelter in place and Americans started uh, as best they could sheltering in place. Um, when we were beginning to reopen American healthcare, there was a skepticism and remains a skepticism with Americans not wanting to go back into healthcare knowing there's COVID there. So you put that all in and that soup has destroyed American healthcare. Mm. Mm. So, so Dina, um, as you're dealing with, uh, and you're consulting with, you know, your clients, you know, what are some of the kind of the, to add on to what Don is saying and, and what has your experience been? What are they telling you? And, you know, what, what can you share with our viewers today? Sure. Well, the virus itself is a difficult one. Uh, it is one that has a long onset for symptoms, and some people are subclinical. They never have symptoms, and they pass this virus on. Just because of that sheer fact of how the virus works, it has been really difficult to contain and manage for healthcare professionals and healthcare in general. Um, so a lot of things, like Don says, absolutely correct. You, you don't have elective surgeries, you can't do PT, you can't do cardiac rehab, you can't do all the things that you normally do because it's hard to manage this virus. Because of that, a lot of the services that you normally would see um, occurring normally in a, in a health system or in a hospital had to be stopped just to manage this process itself makes it really difficult for healthcare overall. And just the sheer fact that there wasn't good information that came out in the beginning of how do you handle it, how do you manage it, made it hard for hospitals. So it severely impacted revenue, um, which you know then the payer mix kind of changed a little bit because then there was reimbursement changes in the midst of all of this, which we'll get into later. You have a workforce that's um, a little nervous 
they're not sure what to wear, how to wear it. You have the infection control people uh, just scurrying around trying to create guidelines and, and do what's best to, to protect the patients and the healthcare people. Um, and people who are now getting care at home, um, visiting doctors and things of that sort when normally they're used to going to an office, all of that together has made it really um, difficult. And, you know, we've learned a lot of valuable lessons from mm -hmm. this, obviously, um, mm -hmm. ones that have made us stronger, but boy, it's going to take a little while to get over the punch yeah. of uh, C-19. Yeah, for sure. So, so Don, uh, Dina had mentioned payer mix, and so kind of diving in a little bit on some of the financial ramifications of COVID-19 and what it's doing to uh, systems. Uh, how has the payer mix changed since the beginning of COVID-19? Yeah, great. And still is changing, by the way. So um, revenue integrity is an important element to healthcare, and that is payer mix and uh, uh, one's ability or patient's ability to pay their copay, coinsurance, or out-of-pocket responsibilities. Well, you might well imagine with uh, 40 million Americans out of work and growing, uh, one, they're losing insurance, Two, they're losing their livelihood, and really the last place they're going to pay or feel responsible to pay is their, their health care bill. So uh, net revenue to gross revenue is falling extraordinarily fast. So even as we get a little busier, uh, the ability for Americans to pay their health care bill mm -hmm. is, is growing. So we're seeing a, a, a movement from commercial to self-pay, and in many cases, uh, Medicaid is not growing uh, in in many many of our states, so it's it's all falling to patients. So with a self pay model with patients, then uh, I'm assuming that they're having to make payment arrangements with hospitals. They're not able to pay all in one at one time, probably. So they're having to arrange for payments down the road, which then defers like when the hospitals can get its their funding, and then it just kind of you know snowballs from there is that right yeah or, or even more common is they're just simply not paying simply can't pay their bill or terrified and and keeping their uh their money to uh, their cash mm -hmm. so, and not paying any bills and then so how are uninsured and underinsured consumers and patients as a result changing how health systems are doing business well it's not changing we still have an obligation to take care of everyone's health care needs and so it's, it's, it's causing less revenue per patient, and that's having, having a, a, a further reaction to our, our bottom lines, okay. our erosion of our bottom lines. So then maybe on the flip side of this uh, is the operational expense reduction conversation, because maybe you're having less patients coming through the system because, like you're saying, they're, they're electing to stay at home. Um, elective surgeries are being deferred, you know, so that kind of patient cycle cycling into the systems is maybe being depressed some. So question for you, Dina, is are operational expense reductions important to health systems at this time? Well, you know, understanding there's 40, almost 41 million unemployed people right now. Mm -hmm. And as Don says, it's difficult for everyone. The government has provided some support with Families First, the Coronavirus Response Act. 
it's helped a little bit uh, when it comes to testing and el eliminating some of the co-payments and deductibles during the time of emergencies. And then there's the uh, Public Health and Social Service Emergency Fund, which helps with testing, covering testing for uninsured people. And there's a disaster relief Medicaid program, which makes it faster to get Medicaid during times of emergencies. Those help a little. Long term, it's not going to help. And, and it's a short term answer. Mm -hmm. um, this is definitely having an, an impact also on patients' health. I mean, they're not going to go to the hospital when they need to. They, there's been multiple incidents of uh, individuals that have had heart attacks that have not gone to hospital just because they're worried about going into a hospital and then mm -hmm. how to pay for it. That's mm -hmm. the last thing we want in healthcare. Um, and also there is now a thought that this could lead to a single payer environment just because of all of this. I don't see that happening, but there are many articles uh, mm -hmm. regarding that and how that can happen. So to offset all of these uh, revenue issues that are occurring, um, there, you have to do something to offset them. So you have to get smarter about billing, and you also have to try to reduce your expenditures on the operational side to try to support it. In a health system, 90% of their spend is in an, or more is in an operational area. So you have to offset that somehow. And ideally, you would do that by doing non-labor things better, contracting, utilization changes, uh, stuff of that sort. Um, you you want to make sure that you are reducing all the costs you can to offset that decrease in revenue. And there are many systems also that help you uh, during registration. And I'm sure Don knows <laughs> this like the back of his hand that, you know, that help make sure that you vet everybody that's coming in. So you know what you're dealing with. You can't turn people away in, in need, but you can at least anticipate what's happening going forward. Mm -hmm. And yes, 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 right. I just comment a little deeper on, on the cost structure. So what every, most every health system has done uh, so far is uh, reductions in force and furloughed. So when our volumes were down, we furloughed people with the hope and prayer that we can bring them back, but we've also uh, laid off a tremendous number of people. And so the, much of that was a reflection of lower volumes, but also the, the reality of our revenues are not in my estimation, going to go back to pre-COVID levels, at least for two years. Then they may not come back. So that's forced us to take a blunt instrument and say we need to, uh, we can't afford mm -hmm. these, uh, these, this, this level of employment. So we reduced it. Um, and with the sheer thinking of uh, ends justify the means, hopefully everyone just works harder. But really the answer for me is, how can we provide healthcare less expensive? And of course, we've been talking about that forever, right? We've all been talking about that in American healthcare. How do we provide costs? Now we have, a, we have an edict. Now we have a, a necessity to say, how do we do that? In my mind, it's evidence-based medicine and clinic um, pathways. So for every diagnosis, there's evidence-based, science-based way, best way, standard way, less, no variance on how to take care of that patient, put that in the medical record, and all of our physicians and caregivers need to handle a patient with that diagnosis uh, the same way. That, to me, 
has the best light on uh, our future, our healthcare's future. Mm. Yeah, and I, I had uh, shedding costs, getting patients out of the hospital quicker, getting them home to their families quicker, mm -hmm. using the right efficacy on, uh, on pharmaceuticals, uh, what tests should be run, what tests shouldn't be run. That's my thinking is the future. So you're seeing that there, there have been workforce reductions in the healthcare industry and you don't see that for the, at least for the near term that those are going to like perhaps return to pre COVID levels for a while. Is that, is that well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I don't believe that mm -hmm. uh, revenues aren't going to come back. Therefore something's got to give mm -hmm. Amer American healthcare is already on the, uh, on a very slim, slim bottom lines. Most companies can't live on the bottom line of a healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And then you have this, something's got to give you, you just can't make it through. So how, how do you see uh, workforce gaps being addressed, you know, uh, especially going forward? So um, right now, we, the farthest from the bedside is, is the, the places that we're looking for the reductions. Mm -hmm. We want to keep as much caregivers as we possibly can and then just improve efficiencies. Okay. And then, so Dina, um, you know, just with your, with your other clients are in, uh, you know, out in the healthcare landscape, are you seeing similar kind of that s similar uh, phenomenon in terms of uh, workforce? Absolutely. Um, everybody is struggling with the same thing and optimizing your workforce. And um, I happen to know Mercy does that. They have a regional approach Mm -hmm. to the workforce. So they have key individuals that are trained. Um, they try to standardize space, which many health systems are attempting to do now. So you can take a nurse from, from any hospital anywhere and transport them to another uh, hospital and just have them work that minute, just like they were in their original hospital. Mm -hmm. So I think that helps with the workforce as well. Uh, making sure that your people who are like non-ICU mm -hmm. uh, individuals are familiar with what has to happen during pandemics. And that kind of goes back to emergency planning mm -hmm. and uh, making sure that you have what you need. Again, this is a great lesson learned. A lot of uh, health systems that I've seen have put emergency planning on the back burner and stockpiling of PPE. It's an expensive thing to do. You don't always want to do it. And sometimes it expires and then you have to get rid of it. And you never used it. And they're like, wow, that's just a huge expense. Well, now it's, it's kind of uh, necessary. And it's great if you train all of your staff on that PPE. Mm -hmm. Originally, it just flows straight in. You know where the trigger points are. So emergency planning is important too to help with the workforce. Those are just different angles to help your staff. Mm -hmm. And then, so do you see, um, do you see that with some of this kind of tightening of like, say the job market in the healthcare industry, um, do you see that? Because from what I understand is that they're particularly, I guess, in the nursing, nursing sector, there tends to be a lot of portability because there's a high demand for nurses. So nurses, you know, can move pretty easily from facility to facility or network to network. Do you see that? maybe with a kind of tightening of the workforce, there's going to be, uh, people are going to hang on to their current positions longer. There's going to be a greater tenure. So then that, that skill set within the healthcare facilities will kind of stay longer. Or do you, you know, do you think that might be one of the kind of 
maybe unintended benefits of uh, um, this kind of, you know, restricting of the workforce? So um, I don't think we know the answer to that question just right. yet. We're mm -hmm. still in the middle of this and we're still trying to make sense of what we're going to look like in a post-COVID world and still trying to manage our health systems in this incredible flux. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't think that question is answerable yet. Um, what One thing I've learned about this virus, unlike any others, is it's changing. And one day we'll set a policy and the next day I reverse it. I've actually, we send, a, I send an email out to all of our managers about every other day. And, I, and I'm very clear, this is the policy and it may change mm. it, it, because this thing, and this, and this virus is, is so scary because it doesn't have a seasonality to it. It's, it's, it does respond to social distancing. Well, we as, we as people don't social distance very well. <laughs> people are not designed to stay by themselves. They really are. Yeah. They, they really are. You know, it was, it, otherwise we would all be roaming this planet by ourselves. Well, the fact of the matter is we form communities and we need each other. That's just fact. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, as much as I want to scream at everyone in a restaurant, you shouldn't be here. Um, the fact of the matter is people need to be with each other. And that bent the curve, but that's not a celebration. The curve only flattened. It's still still one thousand almost a thousand americans die per day mm. that's 360 so the president keeps talking okay we want, we're going to be down to 100 well we've gone over 100 mm -hmm. but in my opinion just my opinion mm -hmm. um there's nothing stopping us we slowed it but it's the lines are not going down there's nothing stopping us it's summer we're all out together mm -hmm. then of course you got the civil unrest and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And to me, we are on our way to 360,000 uh, deaths. Mm -hmm. That is so scary for American healthcare because we've got to take care of these people in an absence of a vaccine. And that's right. horrifying to me. So that was a long way of me saying, I haven't even, we haven't even sat and looked and said, well, how do we maximize right. our, our, and what's the employment model of the future? Right now, we're trying to make sure that we can take care of surges and we're having mm -hmm. um, part of part of part of our footprint is Northwest Arkansas. Well, that's the fastest growing part of the country right now. And we are terrified and moving resources as best we can. Dina said it, you can move nurses around and we're moving nurses and vents and beds and uh, mm -hmm. down to that area, but uh, gone unchecked. Uh, the, the number of people needing hospitalization is far going to outstrip the number of beds and vents that are in that region today. Mm. Mm. So it's a problem that is just, you know, continues to challenge us for sure. Right. So, um, you know, Paul, oh, can I just add, and, and Dom's right, and just to kind of add a magnitude, people hear these numbers every day and they lose importance right to on. some people. Mm -hmm. If you think about the Vietnam War and the Korean War, that was mm -hmm. 80,000 deaths. And that was over the life of that, those wars. Yeah. We're well beyond that for these yeah. deaths. And it is um, very difficult on everybody, mm -hmm. but especially healthcare workers. We have a lot of healthcare workers now that are experiencing mental health issues. They're yeah. afraid. They have PTSD now. 
it's a, it's a war zone and it's difficult and you try to manage that. One of the ways I think it's trying to be managed is uh, they have loosened the licensures of um, uh, nurse practitioners and CRNAs to be able to do more services mm. in a time of need now with less people. I think that'll help some. I don't know how much that's going to help. They also, during times of emergencies, allow people who aren't licensed to perform certain things with training, certain services with training to help. So all of that helps, but um, at some point we're going to have a vaccine. We're going to have less people working in healthcare than we had before. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very, very difficult. I think the worst is still yet to come. Mm. So um, it's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah. Um, so and you, kind you're of, also correct on, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but she's also right on the fact that everyone's becoming uh, numb to the numbers mm -hmm. and to the severity. I've got some of my best friends, business friends who will argue with me over the, these numbers. And it's, it's, it's amazing how people are being dismissive of this. Mm -hmm. when, yeah. when, as Dina said, the worst is in front of us. Well, and I, to interject, I think that might be, some of that might be the, that 24-7 news cycle where people just get inured with content and media, yeah. and then just over time they become numb to it, and it's just their numbers on a screen, and, you know, so it's like, well, yeah, but these are these are people's relatives and loved ones, and, uh, and you know, I people, understand. You know. I understand these people pushing back because most of them are business owners, Mm -hmm. And yes. they're they're losing uh, their businesses. Yeah. Yes. They are losing revenue. They're losing uh, income. They're having to fire people, or there are mm -hmm. people being fired over this, losing mm -hmm. their jobs over this. I get it. I understand both sides of it. Yeah, yeah. That's the predicament we're in. Well, yeah. so um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, given that we've got all this pressure on on both healthcare workers and workforce, and then also people in society at large, you know. Let's kind of talk a little bit about virtual care, uh, what, you know, is traditionally been called telemedicine and technology and uh, some of those things. And so, Dina, what what changes to targeted software and technology are we seeing in health systems post-COVID-19? Well, there's there's several different things. So you, you have to be able to address the issues um, before they come proactively or after they come, you have to find a way to to uh, fix those. So there is, um, uh, I'll just give you a for instance, Jacobs has a software called the uh, ION. Mm -hmm. It's able to track people, tell you how closely, close they are together in a work situation. It's able to track uh, materials. It's able to track equipment, things of that sort, which isn't unusual, but it can do it regionally, which mm -hmm. is kind of unusual. Uh, so if you have ventilators, for instance, in a hospital, uh, I'll, I'll use Don, for example, in Oklahoma, and you need them in Springfield, Missouri, you can tell where all of them are. Uh, you can tell where your people are. You can tell if they're getting too close and you have real time uh, feedback from that. That's, that's kind of important these days to understand that from a safety perspective, mm -hmm. you get dashboard real life alerts. That's important. You also see things for entrance. Um, like kiosks now that have, they take the temperature without being touched. Mm -hmm. uh, they tell you if you're too warm, they can close doors and not allow somebody in if somebody is too warm so that they bar access into a facility. 
Um, it also has like the WHO hand washing techniques and right on the kiosk, it'll have things to dispense stuff. Those are things that are kind of uh, leading down our pathways, especially with less people. You wanna be able to monitor things automatically or virtually and be able to, to provide the things you need. Also, uh, disease surveillance is a big deal. I know that there's some software out there that predicted this outbreak in Wuhan days before the first case and uh, appropriately predicted the pathway, which was they didn't know that till after the fact mm -hmm. that it accurately did it, but it did. And so I think those things will become more important, um, making sure that uh, buildings are smart buildings, HVACs that you can digitally change to a negative pressure instead of having to go in and make physical changes. Mm -hmm. I think all of these things from technology or, or um, just automation uh, will be something that we see more of as okay. we go along. And then Don, like in your system, for instance, like do you see telemedicine, for instance, taking a larger role in healthcare uh, right now or and going forward? Yeah. So how I'd like to, Dina's absolutely right, but how I'd like to, how I look at it is what happened is we sped up mega trends. So people were going to the malls less and less and buying online more and more pre-COVID. Well, guess what? I don't think many American malls are going to open back up. Right. And you see nothing but uh, FedEx trucks and Amazon trucks on the road now. Mm -hmm. That was a mega trend that got sped up. Same with healthcare, specifically primary care, is people were saying more and more they want convenience, they want access, they don't want to drive more than five minutes, they would rather have something over the phone or over video or an app on their phone for their healthcare. Um, it, it's yesterday's thinking to think everyone's going to come to a primary care office and drive 25 minutes to it, sit in a waiting room for 30, 35 minutes, go back, see a doctor, come out and do a bunch of paperwork. So that's what was, that was a, that was a trend that we just sped it up in a matter of weeks. In the first 10 weeks, we advanced healthcare 10 years in 10 weeks. And by, from a mercy standpoint, what we did is we immediately put video, availability of video visits, telephonic visits, and, uh, and our going to the doctor, uh, traditional visits dropped off the map in exchange for uh, doing it electronically. And the patients have a better experience. Mm. Absolutely. And they and won't, so we won't come back to that. We have, I can't even tell you how many clinic buildings we have on our system and how many primary care buildings are in America, but there's a large percentage won't open it back up. Absolutely. And to support what Don's saying also, if, if I may, Paul, um, there are devices being sold at Walgreens and CVS and things called point of care de devices for mm -hmm. otoscopes, you know, for the common things that people go to the doctor for. Uh, otoscopes, portable EKG units, it'll tell you if you have an AFib or a normal sinus rhythm, won't tell you if they're having a heart attack, but mm -hmm. it'll tell you those kind of things. Digital stethoscopes, so that all these readings can go to a physician uh, virtually, and they can say, oh, okay, so I do hear crackles in your lungs, I hear an abnormal rhythm, um, on and on. So it's, it's a different world. Also, reimbursement is changing for telemedicine, which is making it a little more likable for the physician uh, mm -hmm. than it was before so 
So do you see so, like some of this technology, is it like using like smart devices that then like, will like uh, take, take your readings, they'll load it up to your account and then it gets fed directly to your healthcare provider kind of thing. I mean, you see it going kind of that way. It, oh, yes, yeah. it certainly is. It's, it's mm-hmm. go to AI for instance, and then you have your, your answer right there on your phone or it loads up to, you got to have a doctor will call you or a nurse all of that, all of those algorithms are laid out for mm-hmm. you on your phone. Now, um, just to go a little bit on a tangent and something yeah. that's uh, important personally to me is the one thing that scares me so deeply is the poverty gap. Mm-hmm. So um, what I'm, I don't know if we have any evidence of, but where, where some people in deep poverty mm-hmm. uh, may not have access to phones and that kind of thing, uh, smartphones and that, and can't get to the doctor. Uh, I'm worried that uh, people with diabetes, hypertension, all that, gone untreated, gets much worse. Their quality of life goes down. It's far more expensive when they do dial 911 to, to get help. And that segment, we have to be in healthcare. We have to be so careful that we're we're making sure that we're getting answers to uh, poverty-stricken areas. That's a great point, Don. That is a fantastic point because, you know, you think now uh, the people who are in poverty are the ones who don't, you know, aren't traditionally taking as good a care of themselves as they should. They're not having preventative care. They don't always eat right. Uh, They don't get prenatal care a lot of times, all those things. So the people who do wind up coming to the hospital, they're going to be even sicker. Uh, than they were before. And that puts even more of a stress on them as well as for the hospital. Um, When you think about like, so the American nutrition model, right? Like healthy food, organic food is it's priced at a premium. So it's, you know, it's one of those kinds of chicken and egg things where people who are with lower income can only have access to lower quality food, lower cost food, which is also not nearly as good for you as like high end organic food. And then, you know, Dina, you brought up the the idea of like going to CVS and getting, you know, getting this technology and, and being able to do self-care at home. But, you know, that also in a sense kind of mandates that you have those funds that you can mm-hmm. go and buy that technology. Whereas before you were probably just reliant, I would just go to my doctor. My doctor has everything he or she needs to check me out, you know, and then my insurance will pay for it. But now, you know, I'm having to go to CVS and buy, you know, such and such a device and I don't have the money for that. And if, you know, Medicare or the government doesn't like supplement it or I don't have insurance because I'm out of a job, you know, I like Don, I think you made that point. It's like, you know, your healthcare expenses, you know, people aren't paying their healthcare because they're just like, well, I need to hold on to my money. I can't, I don't have that, that liquidity to do that. Well, Paul, you're absolutely right, and it's even worse than that. In a lot of, uh, there's millions of Americans that live in food deserts where you you can't even get cheap food. You can't, and there's no healthcare in an area. And these people are in their apartments and in their homes, and they don't have the ability to even get to uh, that right. kind of foods. So we we're 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 trying, we're acting on it. I'm not just saying I'm worried about it. we're acting on We have mm-hmm. a program where we have community health workers that we hire from those areas. We give them a, a training. And then literally we, if we don't have a clinic primary care building in that area, 
we go door to door. We have clergy vouch for us, so they, they know they're coming, but we go door to door, check blood pressure. What do you need? Have you filled your prescriptions? What do you need? And we do interventions right there on the spot. Is it the right thing to do? Absolutely. Do I take great pride in it? Absolutely. But I think Dean also said, it's also economic. People ask me a quick question, which is, how can you afford to do that? We're already paying for it right. in our ERs. But to the extent we can keep them out of the ERs and keep them healthy at home, it's a win-win. It's awesome. That's Excellent. a win-win. And I think there's going to be still very, uh, there's going to be varied ways of getting care. So mm -hmm. for people who can't afford the home devices. They can still go to clinics. They can still go to a physician's office. There is still Medicaid uh, or Medicare things if they can't do that. Some people prefer to be at home and are not comfortable going to a physician office. I, I can tell you, if I could sit in my living room mm -hmm. and uh, visit with my doctor and say, hey, listen to my heart. <laughs> From here, I'd rather do that than expose myself out there. I mean, so that's just me. Dina, you're part of the trend, right? You're yeah. part of the trend. People that that's right. during COVID access their doctor through tele or video, mm -hmm. they're not going back. Just that's like right. I, uh, um, I told our my pastor as we online church services, mm -hmm. I love it. Come downstairs, jump on the couch, have the family <laughs> around with the dog at my feet and yeah. watch church. I'm not going back to church. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. If you can do it here, it's a wonderful thing. And I think That's this you idea know, of megatrends hitting us and staying. Right. It absolutely is. Absolutely. Well, so Don, Dina, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Um, you know, it is, uh, we, we are living in some quite challenging times. Um, obviously, we're, we're having to have some very agile thinking in how we address these. So it's, uh, you know, I really appreciate your insights and like what Mercy and Jacobs and others in the healthcare industry are doing to try to address these situations and, you know, a lot to chew through and a lot to think about. So uh, Don Sorensen of Mercy and Dina Salvaggio of Jacobs, thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, and uh, stay tuned for more information. Thank you.